You're listening to Couch Kicker, the podcast about pushing yourself further and kicking your couch habit. I'm your host, Jan. Hello. Welcome back. Uh, we had a break. I'd like to say it was a planned break, but, well, uh, my mother told me not to tell lies. So, yeah, I took a break from the podcast for a month or two. Uh, nothing major, just a combination of winter fatigue, of lockdown fatigue, and also because it turns out that it's really tricky to book people for a podcast around Christmas. Who knew? Uh, i tell you what, though. Um, I have been feeling it this last month or so. Um, don't know if you have, uh, but you know what I mean? You know, we've come into the new year, we're still in lockdown, and it's just a grind. You know, it feels never-ending, doesn't it? Uh, January can be a rotten month at the best of times anyway, but this January sucked a big bag of leeches. Um, normally people hit January and, you know, they're at the gym, they're booking holidays or they're working on the resolutions, but, you know, it seems like there's no resolutions this year. Dry January, more like wet January, uh, judging by my neighbours recycling anyway. It was tough, though. It was a tough start to the year, especially... For anyone who has fitness goals, who can't get out to the gym or travel to go exercise out in the outdoors, I'm personally pretty lucky. I've got a few bits and pieces around the house I can use to work out with. I have to admit, I was tempted to sell it all when I saw how much secondhand stuff was going for on eBay, things like weights and benches and rowing machines, because apparently everywhere's sold out. Everyone's setting up those home gyms because the real gyms are all closed up during this lockdown but I was strong-willed I uh, kept my resolve and hung on to everything and I've been using it on the reg and I feel much better for it it's the one thing that's kind of got me through a tough few months at the start of the year when it's dark and cold and wintry was just having a regular routine where I can set aside some time to just focus on taking care of myself and I think things are feeling a bit more positive now. You know, the weather's getting better for a start. You know, things in the UK certainly are feeling more positive around the vaccine rollout. In in my day job, uh, things are picking up with interest in, you know, people wanting to get overseas and take on some interesting challenges. And also for stuff in the UK over the summer, you know, events and, and outdoor events. And it definitely feels like there's light at the end of the tunnel now. And you know, I guess like me, you're probably hoping it's not a train coming the other way. Um, but I think it feels like we're on the way out, right? You know, and let's ha hope that does happen soon. So as I'm recording this, I just got a notification on my phone uh, that the NASA Perseverance probe has touched down on Mars. So uh, uh, at least someone's getting a nice holiday right now. I uh, hope it brings us something nice, <laughs> nice back. Um, I might cut that out. That's nonsense. Um, anyway, some housekeeping. During uh, our little break, it was pretty good to see some new subscribers coming in, uh, you know, new listeners, uh, daily figures and so on. Uh, you know, I was looking at the little map where people listen from and I tell you what, we have gone international. So uh, I want to give a quick shout out to all of our listeners uh, around the world. So Guten Tag, Germany. Sovazdi uh, to Thailand. Grüezi to Switzerland. And um, uh, howdy to the USA. Um, I guarantee I've mispronounced uh, all of those, uh, possibly even howdy, who knows. Uh, speaking of subscribers, though, if you're enjoying the podcast, or even if you're new, why not hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice? You know, I'll put this out free of charge, and a cheeky little smash on that subscribe button will cost you nothing, but really helps to grow the show. And tell you what, if you feel like being a super couch kicker, 
then why not follow us on social media? You can find us at Couch Kicker Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you fancy going old school, then why not check out our site on the old www? And that can be found at couch-kicker.com. Today's guest is John Sullivan, a former Royal Marines commando and founder of Elite Survival Training. John's worked in some of the most challenging environments around the world, from the Arctic to the desert and the jungle, and that experience has seen him consult for some of the most popular survival and outdoor shows on TV, and he runs survival courses in the UK and overseas for individuals, for companies, and for charities. He's a super interesting guy, and he's also got one of the most unexpected hobbies. This is a great conversation, so without further ado, here we go. John Sullivan, thanks for joining me on Couch Kicker. How are you doing, mate? Yeah, all well, really good, thanks. Uh, sat down at the desk in a lockdown, uh, but ready to share some stories. Yeah, I think uh, at the desk in lockdown is the theme for the last 12 months, isn't it? It is, and um, time, time's gone fast, time's gone slow. Uh, it's all about how you cope during it, I guess. Yeah, very much so. And for somebody like you, I guess, who you know, most of your work is out on events and uh, being out amongst people, it's probably not been the busiest 12 months, right? No, it's it's been very, very quiet. Uh, I I normally uh, I work in the outdoor industry, leading expeditions, the jungles and deserts. Uh, so just, as you know, the travel industry has just disappeared. So that was taken away from me. But I also run uh, like survival courses for adults and for schools, and again that was taken from me as well. So it's it's been very quiet work-wise. So the challenge was just how to keep busy, and I've kept myself busy by, in short, uh, I've got a young one-year-old boy who's who's kept me very very busy. I imagine. Um, so that, but it's been a plus. The plus being that I've been able to spend every single day with him since he's been born. And see him develop um so he's kept me busy but i've also just thrown myself into the garden and uh yeah just garden projects just been non-stop so that's me still being able to be outside even though i'm confined to a garden but still you know being in the sun fresh air yeah now that helps and uh, i'm in the same boat as you with a, a sort of new new baby um and it's it has been a blessing you know, you get to spend a lot yeah. more time at home than than i would have done normally it's been been incredible um so what you got your allotment going in the garden you're growing vegetables yeah it, no it's, it's, yeah. it's funny to say that but yes um um has some ginormous railway sleepers uh chainsawed them up created you know sort of raised platforms uh, last year we had strawberries, we had leeks, we had potatoes, we had carrots, courgettes, pumpkins, I had loads of stuff, you know, and it was it was very rewarding actually, you know, probably sound really old now, but it was really rewarding, you know, after planting and pulling out and eating your own carrots, eating your own potatoes and going, yeah, I've grown that, yeah. and, um, and, and it ends up in a soup and that, that was really nice. You know. There's something satisfying about that. I kind of started to grow some stuff over the like last summer as well, except it was all tomatoes. I wish I'd diversified. I was sick <laughs> of tomatoes by the time we got to the autumn. You know, there's only so much tomato soup and tomato salad you can make. Yeah, but it is. But it's it's, it's that that has that has been a pleasure that 
the things that you would normally not pay attention to at home because you were kind of in this you know sort of bubble of an environment you did look a lot closer and uh, it did give you a lot more appreciation so for sure yeah you kind of really do kind of look to what's on your doorstep rather than you know where can i go to get that kind of sense of satisfaction or entertainment it's like what's to hand yeah and 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 the, the the big thing was the mindset was yes you know the first lockdown april last year it was really well but it, it was creating a, a positive a mindset and all i simply did i put my expedition head back on and had a routine that i would get out of bed you know at a set time in the morning i'll have breakfast and then i'll just you know once i've sorted the baby out head into the garden and uh and, and that routine really did help and often in all honesty i'd stay in the garden for with my missus so about one o'clock in the morning, have a little fire in the garden, uh, put a cinema projector up, watch our old travel pictures, and and it became really good actually. Yeah, um, you kind of make your own little little world, don't you? We did. We made our own little world, and once a week, we'd have uh, we'd create like a WhatsApp group. We'd do um, uh, a quizzes to friends and family, uh, which was great. But then we also started to um, recreate every every little sort of family had to recreate a famous film scene so, and then you'd share that and then everybody had to guess what those film what film that had come from so started off quite tame but then as the lockdown got further and further in it, you know people throw more detail into this acting you know so it was, yeah. it was good fun it's like a version of charades but uh done virtually it, exactly that exactly that yeah nice so you mentioned routine there i imagine being a former military man yourself, routine isn't that unfamiliar to you. I mean, how did you find sort of translating that to your to your home life? Yeah, totally. Um, you, but for instance, what, the routine in the military is very important. Um, I've used, you know, I've been in long-term routine, say when I was in Northern Ireland for six months, uh, where it can get monotonously boring, just doing the same thing. But the routine gets you through it. And it was the same on ship. When we do long periods at sea, you're always, you know, you do a revalley at the set time, you do your fizz at the set time, breakfast set time. But having those routines, you, you, you kind of slot into it like a little train and uh, and it just keeps you going. And the routine really has kept me going in this. Um, and it would be each day, just give myself a tiny little task to do. And... That tiny little task could be absolutely anything. It was predominantly gardening, and still is, but it would have that sense of achievement for the end of the day. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've done this day. I've done something positive. I've done something that I've wanted to do. So I, I split it down. There'd be tasks that I had to do, like chores, house chores, and then there'd be jobs that I thought this can be done for improvement. But then I also gave myself a little bit of time where it was my time hmm. and my time you know certainly first for the first lockdown and into summer would be five o'clock to six o'clock baby would be sleeping and i'd have my hammock up at the bottom of the garden and everybody knew not to disturb me because i'd just be chilling there with me you know music on or reading a book and so having that routine that structured day it, it really did help 
you know, it stops you becoming deflated. Yeah, when you take any kind of routine of work or, you know, that kind of normal, like, routine that you've got out of the equation, it'd be so easy. And, you know, I was, like, guilty of that during the first lockdown for the first, say, few weeks of really not having a routine of, you know, kind of bedtime and time you were getting up and times you were eating meals was sort of, like, fluid. You know, it was all over the place. And I just wasn't enjoying it, you know. And as soon as I started to sort of, you know, put in a bit of time for, like, exercise and time to yeah. you know, sort of have leisure time and time to actually work on stuff like little projects i mean i started this podcast during the lockdown because i was like i need something to occupy me because yeah. otherwise i'm staring at the same four walls all day it's you know it's going to drive yeah. me loopy so it does make a big big oh, difference sure. what what kind of tips would you give to anyone who's kind of looking at you know what they're doing now maybe they're kind of still working from home the on furlough or you know, they're just trying to establish a routine. What kind of tips would you give to anyone looking to structure their day a bit better? Just just look what you can do for yourself. Look what you can do to improve, you know, your, your prospects at work. And the, the hardest part, I guess, is just getting that started. And, um, and just start off really, really tiny tiny little steps and then just build it up uh, it can be really hard because you are just doing it on your home on your own and normally you know as, as humans we're always social we're with people and connecting um so that element of doing it on your own can be a real challenge to start with but just just stick with it keep going always it's the simple little things i i do i brush my teeth in the, in the mirror in the morning and, like, and i just say today will be a good day even though I may feel tired and groggy because I've been up at two in the morning feeding the baby, I'm like, today will be a good day. And I smile. And it sounds completely silly, but I, I try to project this energy inside of me. And then I will, you know, it will manifest, it will build itself up and just just keep it going. And at the end of the day, at the actual end of the physical day, just look of going, I've done this, this and this, and just congratulate yourself and it sounds very silly because you're talking to yourself but it's it's like little mind games sometimes it's always look what you've got rather than looking what you haven't got yeah you know don't look oh i can't go out i can't go and socialize with my friends i can't go and do this this and this well actually i am home but i can do i can read that book that i've always wanted to read i can do the jigsaw that I've always wanted to do. I can call my friends uh, and talk to them on the phone. I can do this job that needs always been needs to be done on the house. So look what you can do rather than what you can't do. I think it's easy to to kind of fall into a sort of loop of frustration because everyone's in this position where you know you can't go and see mates or book a holiday yeah. or, or go and do anything. It'd be easy to get into a cycle of feeling annoyed or frustrated yeah. about that but you know you, you can control i think folk exactly what you say focus on what you can control what is you know within the four walls of your house or you know the bounds of your garden or whatever that you can you know that's your area you can take charge yeah. of that and you know tick off your achievements where you've got them not where you can't yeah totally i mean in, you know many times i've been in the jungle and um, when, I, when i take people into say jungles of borneo uh, as new, when they, when you see these newbies, you can see them getting really angry and flustered. Their, their rucksacks are getting caught on on bushes and, and spiky plants. They're getting soaking wet uh, and they're tired. But I say, folks, look 
we cannot control this environment we're in. We cannot, you know, we cannot change the jungle. We cannot control the weather, but we can control how we perceive things, how we look at things. And once people change that mindset and they start to go with the flow, you know, start, instead of looking things negatively, you start looking things positively. Mm-hmm. And I always, you know, for me, when I'd be wet, tired and exhausted, it's like, what have I got to look forward to? Well, I've actually got a good hammock. I've got a dry sleeping bag, and I know that I'll get some hot food. So rather than looking, well, I haven't got a hotel. I haven't got someone who's going to cook me dinner. No, look what I have got. Always look to the positives. Stay away from the negatives. Yeah, so you, you do a lot of like you know, survival, um, bushcraft kind of courses in the UK, overseas. How, how important is that mindset for somebody looking to take on one of those sort of challenges? Yeah, you know, it, it is a survival mindset now. It's 90% positive mental attitude and like 10% skills. Uh, so in, in, a, in a survival situation, it's, it is your the, survival situation. People that have found lost or separated in the world, predominantly they've never had any sort of professional training. Hmm. Uh, but what gets them through it? Not the kit and equipment because that could be very limited and not the training because that could be nil or limited. It's their positive mental attitude. It's their desire to get through it. So in times like this, which is completely new and almost unheard of years back that we would be in a third lockdown, Hmm. it's learning to cope. It's just going, it is what it is. I'm not going to get angry and flustered. Okay. Just going to have to relax into it and find the good that I can get out of this. And I, I appreciate there's people under financial stress or pressure. I am right now. and But I know that it will pass. And I just look at the positives. The positives, I get to be with my baby boy every single day. All right. If the lockdown was not on, I was in the last year, I would probably been away three or four months and I would have missed that potential, you know, that growth in him. So, I look at it as, okay, lockdowns happen, but I, I see them every day. Yeah, then that's a massive positive. That's time that, you know, you could never have had that yeah. time. And I think to kind of view it that way and say, look, there's, there's all this other stuff going on, but let's just focus on this, which that's always going to be a positive. It's never going to change, you know, jobs, work, money, that will come down the line. But those months at home yeah. with a little boy, they're Price only ever going to happen during that, you know, kind of period where you were there. Yeah, absolutely priceless, and uh, it's been a real treasure, in all honesty. Nice. Yeah. So, so when things eventually uh, open up again, and we were talking before we started recording about, you know, what what could maybe happen later in the year, what what are you most looking forward to about sort of getting back out? Uh, I love teaching. I love teaching, you know, bushcraft and survival. I love going into the woods and teaching a person how to make fire with next to nothing for the first time because I like seeing the wow factor, how everyone's like, wow, and and seeing how people just engage with nature. And I think after this lockdown, outdoors is going to be very, very important for people socially because they can be with people, but also for them mentally because we've become heavily dependent on, on digital, you know, talking through you know, that through Zoom and and apps of such. So to do face-to-face meetings and just to almost de-digitalise just for a day, 
uh, and bring people together. I think it's, it will be great. And the outdoors is such a positive environment to be in. You know, it is very, very therapeutic in its own way. Uh, absolutely. I think, you know, there's been a focus rightly on sort of physical health over the last sort of 12 months with, you know, a pandemic going on, but mental health's a big, big part of this. And, you know, I think this month, I don't know about yourself, but the last sort of month since, since the new year, just it feels like this is a much tougher lockdown than the previous two that we've had. I think people, generally January is a crappy month yeah. anyway. Um, so to kind of spend it locked up at home, not seeing family and friends as much as you'd want, it's, it's a tough one. So I think there's, a, you know, we're on the the upward slope towards summer now you know i think people can see that light at the end of the tunnel and i think you're right there's there's going to be a pent-up demand for people to get out there in whatever way it's going to be and not necessarily you know jumping on a plane and going like overseas but just stuff that's right on the doorstep that yeah. we've not been able to do absolutely and, and this this third lockdown we've you know we've had minimum daylight hours you know yeah. And when you reduce people's access to sunlight, it has a huge effect on their serotonin, their feel-good factors, and that's why people felt they found it a lot tougher. But once you you know start extending daylight hours, people people feel good, you know. So uh, it's probably why they've got the highest suicide rate in Norway because in winter they only get what five to six hours of daylight. You know? Yeah, that, that that would be rough. Yeah, that 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 is rough, rough. But yeah. um, the the positives are on the way, more positives because daylight days are getting longer, and you know the vaccine's rolling out at a tremendous speed. Infection rates are going down, and uh, I take it all as a plus at the moment. Yeah, it's one of the good news stories I think in the UK yeah. is this vaccine rollout. Just seems to be, we're like flying on that, and I think let's keep it up. And you know that's yeah. that's the route out of this now. So we've got to it's got to go along with it. It is. And life, okay, life will slowly return to normal. How long that would take, I don't know. But you just have to believe it. Believe it will go back to normal at one point. Yeah. So so when it does go back to normal, I want to talk a bit about um, the, the actual sort of survival uh, courses you do. Because you run stuff in some really interesting places. I mean, we actually, I did one of your survival yeah. courses, would have been about five years ago, six years ago now, um, in a different life and a different job that I had. But I was like, I loved it. It was great. We brought a group of students out. It was this tiny uninhabited island. Uh, we took a speedboat out there and it was just a really good course. But what I enjoyed about that was seeing how everyone reacted differently because we had this different group of characters. You know, Everyone had their own personalities and it's not always the ones you think that will take to it. They actually yeah. sort of flourish in that environment. So, can you talk a bit about you know, your experiences starting this up? How you found people's responses to those survival situations? Well, so I, I started up. If we go back in time to 1985, I grew up in Bedfordshire. It was uh, a world of BMXs and rope swings and den building as a as a ten year old. And I, I just, I grew up in a small village of Heath and Reach, and I just loved the woods. And I loved going out there, exploring those woods every day. And uh, and often camping in those woods as well. Probably wasn't allowed, but yeah. what you do as a kid. And uh, I just lose the, I, I, I can't, I can't, it's hard for me to describe just the, 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 the effect, the wow factor of sitting around a fire, smelling the smoke, 
and just having that kind of sense of a freedom as a young kid. And so I knew at a young age I was going to go towards an outdoor life. And uh, I was very fortunate. I went to a, a boarding school because my dad recognised that I had an interest in the military. This boarding school was uh, Kingham Hill School in, in Oxfordshire. And I went there as a 12-year-old. I was absolutely petrified. And every Monday, they would do what's known as the CCF, the Combined Cadet Force. And there was two characters there that really changed my entire life. First character was an ex-Coldstream guard, Mr. Peak, who was, he was like a British bulldog, thick set neck. He could scream and bark and, and put the living, the fear of God into you through his discipline. Why your boots aren't polished, your trousers not, you know, starched. But I, I kind of thrived in that. But the second guy that it was just a wow factor was a guy called Bob Shepton, who was a reverend, but he was a former Royal Marines officer mountain leader and as a 12 and 13 year old boy i used to see this guy running to school every morning wearing boots tracksuit wearing a green beret and i thought what is this and um he devised uh in the school a thing called a commandos and it was a kind of elitist bit of the school with the cadets and it had a lot of perks do some nice trips and everybody wanted to join because of the demand, he used to basically whistle people out through to being physical. So you had to show that you could run four miles, six miles, nine miles, speed marches in raw marine time, wearing full kit. So when you're doing that as a 14-year-old, looking up to a former raw marine, you're like, wow. Yeah. And of course, I, I ended up in the commandos. Um, the school had an amazing, amazing assault course it would never pass today's health and safety. <laughs> it was just meant, but as a kid, you loved it. It was just like these amazing rope swings and underground tunnels and 10 foot walls you had to get, but I loved it. And what Bob really installed into me was commandos will always give that little bit extra. So we would do the assault course. We would do the long runs. And at the end, you go, right, press ups. And he always did the press ups with us. And we would be like really tired and commandos always give that bit extra. And at 16, you know, I, I pretty much left school with next to nothing. Academically, school was not for me. So Bob's like, what do you want to do? I was like, I really want to be a Royal Marine. And so we ramped up the physical training another level. And uh, I left school June, June 1991. By October 1991, I joined the Royal Marines. Wow. But the biggest asset I had, I was 16. I joined up with 60 other guys, and I weighed 65 kilograms. I was tiny. I was skinny. And I was the youngest guy there in, in the batch. And uh, a lot of people, oh, he won't make it. He's 16. And if you can imagine, that, you know, these these Royal Marine instructors, they will, they will impact, they have such a, there's such imposing characters that you've got to you've got to be the best and it can be very intimidating so when i was faced with four mile six mile and nine mile runs in the back of my head i was like i've done this already yeah and bob said never ever tell anyone you've done this but <laughs> on, on, on the on the on the day that you've got to pass you know the physical test i'm like i've done this already i did this a year ago plus and um 
you know, I, I did the Marines. I did the 30 mile. I got my beret. And uh, it was a truly emotional moment after running 30 miles. But the nice thing about it, if we fast forward 26 years later, I lost touch with Bob. And I always wanted to say thank you to him personally. But I, I didn't know where he lived. I lost contact. But I found him through social media, through yeah. this cool website. And I found out he was doing a book, a book signing in London. I was like, I have to go to this. And I went there to London. And there was a lot of people there to, to congratulate him. And uh, I saw Bob. And uh, I had my berry in my pocket. And uh, he's signing the books. And he looked up. And I didn't tell him I was coming. He's like, Sully. I was like, Bob. And he jumped up. And honestly, I wanted to cry. And uh, he gave me a massive hug. He's like, don't cry. And I pulled out <laughs> the berry. You know, 26 you know, sort of 30 years later, I was like, Bob, I did it. And he went, I knew you would. And I think it was that that one character that really put me on the path where I am now. Because he always says, commandos give that little bit extra. He gave me the belief that I would succeed. And from the Royal Marines, I did jungle training, desert training, cold weather training. And that furthered my appetite right, to, to go out there and travel. So from... Gosh, from, from the military, it was a real challenge to adapt in my transition after nine years. I've gone from a boarding school to a military environment to then becoming a civilian going, what do I do? Hmm. Um, but in, in the military, I had this most amazing sort of uh, experience. It was in 1997. Um, we stopped in Malaysia on ship in Kuantan. And we had R&R, &R, and I went to a place called the Tierman Islands. And uh, we, you know, we went over there. It was about 10 of us. And on this Saturday night, all the locals, they pulled out this big wooden box TV, like 1970s style, and this video player. And everyone was really excited. I thought, what, what's going on? And they all sat down, and they watched the film Rocky. And I was like, no way. And... <laughs> When I was watching this, I was like, wow, this is this is this is very, very cool seeing how the locals are excited. And then I saw some some youngsters like staying in these huts and they were having a good time. I was like, guys, who are you? What do you do? And so we're backpackers. So what what on earth are backpackers? And so, well, we kind of like just get a flight to any country and we make up the script as we go along. And I for me, I thought I would love to have that sense of freedom to yeah. just go out there. And as I sailed away from the Tierman Islands, I was absolutely gutted because I was going back on ship now and I was about to, you know, crack on for another like month or six weeks in a, in a jungle. But I thought I'd love to have that freedom. So I made a wish. I was like, I will return to this place one day. And, um, and a few years later, well, I say a few years, I say probably about five years later, I did return to the Tierman Islands, but as a civilian as a backpacker nice. it was that was the start of a, a good journey did you do the classic backpacker sitting on the beach playing guitar throwing a frisbee <laughs> well the, my first experience was i left i left them the raw rooms in 2001 2002 i uh i i did some work and uh, I saved up the money and I thought, right, that's it. I'm going to disappear now for three months. I thought, this three months of freedom, this would be amazing. 
So I, I flew into Bali and um, I was in Kuta and uh, yeah, I had two nights in Kuta and thankfully I left because the day after I left, Kuta got blown up, the Bali bomb mm. happened and I was like, I can't believe this. So, and everyone literally left Indonesia overnight yeah. but I decided to stay and this was a key turning point in my sort of exploration and travels before I don't want, you know, to, to go back home. What have I got, got to go back home to? And uh, I remember seeing a documentary about these guys that hunt whales, uh, pilot whales or sperm whales in a, in a place called La Malera, uh near East Timor. And I thought, I'm going to go to them. And I travelled, you know, 500 kilometres by boat, motorcycle, rickshaw, trekking. And eventually, this very remote place, I ended up on La Malera. And um, that, was, that was my kind of first ever experience of seeing uh, communities that are kind of like dependent on being self-sufficient. They yeah. were dependent on the sea, they grew their own crops. And I was kind of like bowed over by it because they did not need to have money. And... Um, they just needed to be able to sustain themselves from, from the land itself. And um, it was a big push, big courage test to travel 500 kilometres just on my own, especially as all Westerners had left Indonesia. And I got to this furthest point and I was like, I want to go further now. I want mm. to see how far I can push it. How far can I test myself? But I was under time because of my visa. I ended up back in Bali. I then went to Thailand, Cambodia. But I was completely wowed by it. I did the regular sort of Lonely Planet backpacker route. But I wanted more because I'd done the jungle training with the military. Uh, I was comfortable to live in the jungle on my own. And uh, I did a, I put a five-year plan together on my last week in Thailand, sat on the beach, and uh, I wrote out everything I needed to achieve, and one of which was to buy a property, to let it out, to be a school teacher. And uh, I come back home, and for four years, I became that teacher. I bought the property, I let it out. And it's very hard at times to be focused, but I saved up all my money. And whilst being a school teacher, I started to lead trips in some holidays. And this was to like Namibia. Borneo, Mexico, and I loved it because it was for uh, it was taking youngsters away. But what I loved was seeing how these youngsters would absolutely thrive in this new environment. The fact that they're not being handheld by mum and dad anymore; they're being made to think on their feet. They have to learn to budget. They've got to learn to work as a team, and also we're seeing new cultures at the same time. So. At the start of these trips, you have youngsters that are very unsure, that can't pick up a phone to book a plane. But by the end, they are all over it. But on, the, you know, it's almost like fate on these trips. On a Borneo one, um, we're in the middle of nowhere, and the, the the trekkers they run out of food as youngsters. They hadn't planned it properly, and I, and mistakenly, I hadn't checked the food, and uh, so in the middle of nowhere. On this long, this long six-day trek, the guys went, "Don't worry, we're going to go and uh, we're going to go catch a pig." I was like, "What do you mean you're going to catch a pig?" He said, "We'll go get, we'll go find it." I was like, "Oh my gosh, can I, can I come with you on the hunt?" <laughs> and uh, 
I said, look, you can um, if you can move fast with us. And with that, I literally ditched a rucksack, day sack, uh, had a machete with me and a whistle. And all the students were secure with some senior guides and teachers. They were in a safe spot. And these two young lads went, we're going to move fast. And my gosh, they took off running through the jungle. And it was a real adrenaline buzz, a real sense of excitement. And as I'm watching, I was like, how on earth are they tracking wild game? And they was they were reading the signals through the jungle like we follow footprints through the snow. So eventually, um, we got to a place where there's a lot of wild ginger. And this is what uh, pigs would eat. And they started mimicking noises. And they ended up shooting uh, a, wild, a wild pig. But they only injured it. And, of course, it ran off in the jungle. And uh, I said, look, we're now going to go fast. Maybe you'll stay here, John. And they took me down to the rock by the river. And they sat me down on this rock. And I, I distinctly remember it. They gave me this big cigarette called a Guran Garam cigarette. Nutmeg. And they said, right, smoke this cigarette when we're back. When it's finished, we'll be back. So I was like, okay, don't really smoke, but I'll have a fag. And it took me about 20 minutes. And those 20 minutes are really powerful. I was like, how cool is this? I'm on this rock. I haven't got a foggiest where I am, which direction the students are. But I've got these two guys that have just left me and they've gone to get food for the day. <laughs> and I was like, I need more of this. And uh, it sparked more. So that's when I decided to come back to England. I did hand in my notes to teach. And I let the house out and uh, said pennies. And I had a one-way ticket to Bangkok. And that was the start of 2006, which was an amazing journey. Wow. So I think that, yeah, those experiences, that moment sat on the rock, smoking the nutmeg cigarette, yeah. kind of, you know, just waiting for that. You couldn't have created that moment. You couldn't no. have sat at the start of that and thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to have this happen to me. You probably wouldn't have even considered there is a possibility, but that's what I love about whether it's traveling, whether it's kind of being in these situations where you are out of your comfort zone is things will happen that are the things that stick with you. You kind of spoke about that. There is a, a real powerful memory. But yeah. you would never have considered that as being the highlight of that trip before going. But no. suddenly afterwards, that's the one thing that you, you kind of hang on to. And that's what I love about getting out away from the regular day-to-day -day and being in the situation where, you know, things will happen. Things will kind of just, you know, organically fall into place. Yeah, and I think the key thing is you have to say yes to opportunities. And we track it all the way back. I was offered this expedition to Borneo and uh, I said yes to it but I was pre-warned I said look that the company said this is going to be very very tough and, um, and there are going to be some tough hard students but I said yes to it and then you know when we decided to do the trek I decided to let the kids you know take charge and sort out their own rations it's all it's just saying yes to opportunities because a lot of people say oh Sully you're really lucky I say yes to everything you know, and it doesn't always go my way, but if you if if you if you let if you go to engage, things will engage you back, and it's that that moment on the rock, and uh, and it and it just kind of like so such a massive seed, so which led me to learn. Behold, years later, living with the Panan people of the Madic people of Borneo, going out hunting again, but this mm. time I haven't got students. I'm just on my own, and I'm out there for a month, and it was. It's a very, very powerful 
experience. Do you think that when you kind of meet uh, various kind of like groups of people, whether it is the Panam people, whether it's these sort of isolated communities, do you think having that attitude of like, you know, I'm just going to take things as they come, I'm going to be open to new experiences is helpful? Yeah, absolutely. You have to go there as an open person willing to to learn and and to experience and also to share uh it's, it's pointless going there if you're going to be closed and go i'm not going to try and not everything you're going to try will be enjoyable but that's part of the learning curve you're also stepping out of your comfort zone um often when i take people away the very first few days say in the jungle they are you know very apprehensive they're very cautious but as they grow confident and more sure of themselves, could you imagine a complete beginner by day seven having just a machete in a jungle, but now having the knowledge to identify edible plants to make fire from next to nothing to make an improvised shelter? But the key thing is that person chose to open up and learn. And I didn't, you know, so that that's the great thing. It can be really hard when you have people going, I don't want to try. Mm. So, but you, you know, you never know where it may lead you. So I always say to people, just just give it a, a try. And, you know, the maddest thing, going a little bit away from expeditions, has completely changed my life, was I tried to dance. I was going to ask about this. Uh, this, this, this. This completely changed my whole life. Um, you know, my mum, she's always danced. She does, she used to do ballroom dancing, and she's like, Son, come with me dancing. I was like, I'm not going to dance with you, mum. That's not me. But I used to like going to nightclubs and dancing, you know, sort of just moving on the spot to the beat. And she's like, just come along one night. I said, I'm not, I'm not dancing. She said, it's not ballroom. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's dancing with a person. Um, but it's, it's, it's moving to a beat. And I, I went along one night. And I had this like image in my head, it's going to be full of really old people and, you know, it'd be, you know, just terrible. But I walked away going, oh my gosh, that was amazing. And I went back and back. And uh, I got asked to take part in um, Strictly Come Dancing, Northampton charity show 10 years ago. And I, I went on stage and, sorry, I trained for six weeks and I went on stage and had to perform. And it was amazing. And I, I did a, a John Travolta routine. <laughs> but that, did you have the white suit? I, I, I had the white flares uh, and the, and the glitter, silver glitter top. Nice. You know, I was, you know, I was like, I was the man. I, it was happening. <laughs> and, um, and I absolutely loved it. And although it was a competition, I didn't win. I kept on dancing. And it was from there, a few years later, I met Veronica, who... who um, we teamed up dancing together, competitions, we got engaged, we got married, now I've got Michael. And it's all because I said yes to going to dance one night. If I hadn't said yes, I, I would not have, you know, my wife. I'd not certainly not have baby Michael. So it's just saying yes to things, even though at the start of the end, this is going to be awful. Just just give it a stab. Just give it a go. You know. And um, life hinges on these decisions, doesn't it? Yeah. Totally, you, you, you know, it's it's being open, and um, I know that you you know you, you were saying previously before this call, you know, you do these um, really tough physical walks in the UK, 
what a great thing to do to get out there and 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 trek along our, our amazing countryside because it's not just you you're going to meet some really cool people and just being just knowing that you're raising money for a charity and and you're going to meet like-minded characters so go out there and try when i go to travel back in the uk people say it's just you it's just you doing it and it can feel very alone when you when you start making these initial plans but once i get traveling i am no longer the minority i am the majority i am yeah. like-minded people and that's really great because it becomes very powerful and sharing ideas and it can really not feel make you feel alone it can reinforce your character going I am doing something that I love and these people around me doing what I, what I love as well. Do you find with traveling and certainly my experience has been if you go somewhere with like on, as a group or with a friend, you know, you say you go backpacking with a mate, you're a different person and you interact with people differently than if you go on your own. Like, you know, you said you went sort of 500 kilometers up to this remote island to find, you know, some people you'd seen in a documentary. You were just, there is yourself so you can you know you can be a yeah. more authentic version of yourself but also kind of discover a bit more about who you are you know because you're not sort of playing up to what somebody else's expectations are of you yeah so if, if you're on your own and if first of all when i've when i've been on my own and you've been on the regular traveler route you kind of like you can make a decision i just want to have a meal on my own or i'll go introduce myself to those characters over there and join a group hmm. so on your own you do become a lot more sociable, I, I believe, that you will go out and go, guys, can I join you for a beer, join you for a meal, and you will meet more people. Whereas people that have travelled, say, boyfriend, girlfriend, they do remain a little bit more isolated. They stay, stay a little bit insular to just between themselves. I've always enjoyed... It's, it's pros and cons. I've travelled on my own, and I've met the most amazing people because I've gone... I want to go talk to people. Mm. But at the same time, I've sat and watched the most amazing sunsets. I'm going, I'm just on my own. I shouldn't I shouldn't be on my own. I should be sharing this with someone. So it's it swings and roundabouts. But on your own, you do you do have more you are more you're able to be more spontaneous on what you do and where you go. And that's what I really enjoyed. But equally the enjoyment part has been when you have shared that sunset or seen that wonderful temple, you've shared an experience together. And certainly a few years back, I took um, my missus, went to, took her to Borneo. I threw her in a deep end. <laughs> and she's like, John, what do you do on these trips? I said, well, I do jungle survival. And she's like, I'd like to come with you. And she came with us. And the moment came where... You know, she made a fire in the jungle, was sat round it under the stars with the Penang people. And she's like, I totally get it. I totally get why you do this. This is just so brilliant. And the great part is now, it's not just me telling the stories around the dinner table. I, I let Veronica tell those stories. Nice. Uh, and so, so she she absolutely loves it. So it's, it swings around about go with someone or to go on your own. Both got added plus things and minus things now shared experiences make you know they're the things that you talk about for years to come my, my yeah. strongest memories from you know taking on say something like mount kilimanjaro the things that the people that you're there with you know you kind of meet up for a reunion you're in the pub and you're swapping stories no one talks about oh do you remember when we made it to the summit 
Or yeah, do you remember when we made that? They talk about, do you remember when, you know, Billy fell over or yeah. you know, somebody forgot to put their boots on? It's all those kind of little human moments that yeah. you, know, you can't plan for them. You can't make them happen. It's what will happen naturally when you chuck a load of people together in an environment where they're, you know, they're kind of not worrying about their alarm clock for work in the morning or, you know, what clothes they're wearing or any of those other concerns. It's just about people with a common goal, whether that's to get to the top of a mountain or build a shelter or, you know, whatever that may be. And people always ask me, John, what is going to be the hardest part of the trip? And I said, I always say that the trip is going to be hard, but it's going to be even harder when you come back. Because as you say, you know, when you've climbed these amazing mountains and you've gone through such a powerful journey and experience with friends, how do you, how do you, tell people back home what it was like who've not been there yeah how to get them to understand look guys you don't understand that i was absolutely exhausted i had to put a tent up i had to light my tranger cooker and hydrate my food and the bloke next to me snoring all night and it was, mm. i was sleep to sleep to provide uh debt provide but they are the fun moments you know that you look back on uh and so not always like when you stood at the peak watching the sun sunrise now the post trip, post challenge blues are, uh, are some yeah. of the worst, you know, because you kind of come back and realize life's just been going on. You know, you've been yeah. away for a fortnight or a month or however long, but everyone's just been getting on with things. And you know, you pop up and you're like, "This is all I've been doing for a month. I want to talk about it." But they're like, "All right, come on." And, that, and and that's why traveling can be so addictive, because the more you see, the more you know that's out there to be had, and. Um, we go back sort of 20 years i was mad i was hungry for it yeah you know, for, for new experiences and i was kind of looking ways each time to ramp it up step it up so i'd done you know kind of like 10 months in southeast asia living on uninhabited islands and i was, it was just it was, it was just getting mad and mad and crazier so I come back to england i thought i've been back a month and i had itchy feet I was like, yeah I don't want to sit home and just watch TV. I thought, you know what? I'm going to go to India, but I need to make this a little bit different. And everyone's like, where are you going to go in India? I was like, I don't know. And uh, this is the truth, completely mad. I had a I had a, a return ticket to Delhi, six months. Um, but to make it a little bit of a challenge, because I always like to see how I respond, I had no idea where I was going to stay in Delhi. And I refused to open up the guidebook until on that sort of 14-hour plane trip, when the seatbelt lights come on and says plane is now going to come into landing, I thought, now I will allow myself to open up the guidebook to find out where I can stay that day. And wow. uh, I remember coming out of Delhi, Delhi Airport and just like, oh, my gosh, what's this? I got dragged into a tuk-tuk. And I said to the guy, just take me to the main bazaar. It's like... You know, we're a backpacker stay. And uh, I, I stepped out of this tuk-tuk. I was getting dragged by all these hotel people. And I was just like, let's just be spontaneous. Let's just see where it goes. And um, it was the most amazing journey through India, being spontaneous. Yeah. Being a little bit mad, getting on a bus and not even asking where it goes. And that was it. That, that was how, <laughs> that's how far I'd gone. And... Um, just end up in some industrial estate outside of uh, Mumbai. <laughs> but oh, but I, I ended up in Kerala. I ended up in the mountains and staying in this like hope, 
this family lodge that charged me a pound a day. They bought firewood in for the room. They gave me chai. They gave me rice and vegetables. And it was amazing. But it was because I was spontaneous. And um, how long are you going to stay for? I don't know. Stay as long as I want to stay. And then I'll just move on. And uh, it, it become very addictive. And, and it was from there, I was like, I need to push it more and more and more which then eventually led me to places like Papua New Guinea where it went totally off-grid yeah. for long durations. Yeah, t- tell me a bit about that, because you spent quite a lot of time in Papua New Guinea, haven't you? You run survival courses uh, there. So how did you kind of first find your way out there? So, again, it was that opportunity that came to me. When I went for a, an interview with this expedition company back in 2005, uh, the boss... Rob Murray, it's very informal. He said, right, there is a blank air ticket, John. Write on it where you want to go in the world and what you want to do. And I wrote down Papua New Guinea, live with a tribe. Back in 2004, there's a chap on BBC Two called Bruce Parry. Yeah. Who, who went and lived with tribes for a month. And I was like, I have to do this. I want to do this. And i really inspired by it. And I told Rob, I said, that's what I want to do. I'm in India. I've got no money. I'm four months into the trip. I've got a goatee. I'm smelly. I'm turning feral. <laughs> and uh, I checked my email, you know, like once a week. And it, it just went, Sully, ring me. Your plane ticket has come in. I was like, hey. And this is now like two years on since I had that interview. I phoned him up. And he's like, Sully, he said, look, do you want to go to Papua New Guinea? I was like, what for? He said, well, we need um, a fixer, a scout to go in to find this tribe that does a sport. I said, well, when do you need me? He said, well, we need you in seven days' time. Come back if you want to. I was like, man, I'm going to do this. And it was actually for the BBC for Last Man Standing. Wow. And uh, I shaved my goatee off. I got a haircut. I got scrubbed up. I flew back home said hello to my folks, ditched my traveller kit, packed my expedition kit, went back to London, Heathrow, met a BBC rep, gave me a satellite phone, gave me some comprehensive med kit, gave me a load of cash, load of cash, big integrity test when you, you skin. And and the brief was going to PNG, into CPIC to find a tribe that does a sport. I was like, mental, getting paid now to travel off grid. This is yeah. going to be me. And um, I hooked up with another expedition leader, Ben Major, who's very senior to me. And uh, I was, in all honesty, massively stepping out of my comfort zone, going, I, I just don't know how to put a TV program together. And under Ben, he's like, look, first of all, we need to sort out uh, casualty evacuation plans what are we going to do if we're bitten by a snake or if we're injured who's going to get us out from the middle of nowhere so you know it was going around in Port Moresby um, hospitals speaking to doctors evacuation companies that have airplanes and helicopters but before we knew it, it was flying in a small microite plane into the middle of nowhere to just go and live with a tribe and it was I was buzzing. One minute I'm in India, now I'm in this, and I'm getting paid, <laughs> and I've got money to pay for planes, got money to pay for anything. So all those skills that I learned as a traveller to accept and have an open experience, 
I now had to do, but on a work front. And um, with these guys, and it was like, what would you do? And they were all canoeists up the Seapick River, and they would hunt crocodiles. And uh, I got to spend, I think it was the first 10 days, authentically, just Ben and I, just seeing what they're all about. And then we got to kind of put a TV show about them, and eventually the crew come out with their contributors, and they film the show canoeing up the river. And it was just wow. But from that moment, another opportunity come, which I said, I'll oh, do. The director is like, John, what are you going to do when this show's over? And I was like, quite honest with him. I said, look, I haven't got a job. I've got nothing going on in England. I'm just going to stay in country and live with this tribe on my own. <laughs> and he, he's like, ah, you're absolutely bombers. I was like, what, what else is there? These people, are, I find them absolutely fascinating. So I was given this opportunity, said, look, if you stay in country for like two weeks, we'll put you up in a hotel, we'll pay you some money. Would you be willing to walk uh, a trek called the Black Cat Trail? Uh, and this was a route that was um, going from inland to the coast. that hadn't been walked for, like, since World War Two, And it was, abs- and it was, we didn't know if it would be accessible. It was for uh, Extreme Dreams, Ben Fogle. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. So I've, I'm, you know, I'm fully acclimatised. I'm at the start line. Another expedition leader has come out, and we start walking this route. And it was really kind of exhilarating because, like, we don't even know. We had maps, okay, yeah. and maps, but it was just green. There's no footpath. So there's like, no signposts. There's no, no signposts. Established there's, there's, trail. Like we're completely winging this. We've got mm. like five days worth of food. Did you have any kind of GPS, or was it all paper maps? No, we're, not even GPS. Not even paper maps. We we found two good local guides that said we will walk into the first village ten kilometers in, and then we will find some more locals that can walk you to the next village. It was kind of bouncing from village to village, gaining just local. Mm. local knowledge uh, and and that's what we did and uh it was it was it was absolutely brutally punishing honestly absolutely mental so was this like kind of thick jungle so it's hot it's humid yeah it's it's it started off open so it was exposed to the sun and then once we entered the jungle it was very gnarly it was very hilly uh steep hills inclines declines wading through rivers then repeat and often when we're staying in a local village they're always on top of a hill to viewpoint because mm-hmm. it'd be their sort of defense lookout um but actually on day four you know we're, we're kind of hoping that we're towards the end matt's like sully you, you look like death mate and i was like i feel like death and uh we found these old abandoned huts and we rested up and i had um malaria come on to me and uh, it, it was absolutely dreadful, absolutely yeah. dreadful, you know. And uh, took some some medicines for it, but just rested up for 24 hours. Matt and I were in one old disused hut. We're talking in the middle of nowhere. Our two guides that we trust, or thought we could trust, were in another hut. We get up, you know, when I'm feeling a bit better, you know, a day or two later. And uh, the guides that ate all our food ate everything. <laughs> a serious amount of rice and tuna and yeah. that they ate. And all I had, thankfully, was my emergency belt kit 
I had uh, an emergency meal that I could eat cold and some jammy dodgers and suffering classic. With, classic, you know, suffering with malaria, survived trekking through the Papua New Guinea jungle eating nothing but jammy dodgers. Should get in touch with them. That's a good marketing campaign. Oh, it's it's the best because I think the sugar rush has just gosh through it. And I got to the end and I just collapsed. I was like, oh my gosh. And uh, I had turned out, I got tested, I had falcipular malaria, which would be very, very dangerous. Mm. But weirdly, and it sounds very weird, I, I'd been looking for that moment for several years. And um, I was looking for the moment where I'd be on my knees that I would be mentally and physically broken. And I always called it the Rocky Balboa moment. Mm. And it's kind of like in, in the film Rocky Two, you know, he gets punched by Apollo Creed. Is he going to get back up? And it's having yeah. that heart, that heart and desire. And I wanted to know if I had that. And um, that Rocky Balboa moment was waking up, you know, with the malaria, that all your food has gone, bar jammy dodgers going, this is it. And we banged out 30 kilometres. Can you imagine that? 30 kilometres with jammy dodgers. And, that's, uh, that's your only sustenance. Yeah, that, that was it. I'm telling you, get in touch with Jamie Dodgers because this is the next marketing campaign. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got another marketing one because I flew back to PNG 2010 for Nat Geo, and this time it was asked to uh, research a documentary about cannibalism in a very remote spot. And so after lots of research, I flew in. But I, um, I always understand to, to win the locals, you've got to be able to connect and uh, I always tell people, wherever you go traveling well, take a few things from home. So I take with me pictures and postcards of home, of our jungle, uh, sorry, of our woodlands, our mountains and lakes and canals and things like that. But this one funny moment that appeared out of nowhere that I was walking from one village to the next, it was very tribal. And as I approached this village, there were two big strapping blokes there with bows and arrows in a hand looking quite menacing and all i had it, that popped into my head was david attenborough when he went to papua new guinea in 1950s and in this black and white archive footage this tribal community comes running down to sir david attenborough and what's the first thing he says is stick your hand out and says hello i'm david i'm from england <laughs> this, this is what popped into my head so as i got these two menacing guys looking at me i went Hello, my name's John. I'm from England. <laughs> and they kind of like looked at me bemused. But then I pulled out and I, I pulled out a packet of extra strong mints. And uh, I thought, just make a simple offering. And I handed, I took a mint and I handed the guys an extra strong mint each. And imagine never, ever having tried mint before in your entire yeah. life. And as someone who doesn't throw you a polo, they threw you an extra strong mint. <laughs> and their eyes just like widened. They're like, oh my gosh, what is this? And they smiled and kind of like, you know, follow us. So you make that connection straight away. Yeah. And other little tips and tricks. I always kept I always keep the, 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 the big thing up the sleeve. We've done the mints, we've done the postcards, but then what else? And uh the locals will always offer you some delicacies. Sometimes it would be genuine. Sometimes it would be, let's just have a laugh on the white guy. <laughs> well, like yeah, some, no. some uh, sheep's eye soup or something, or yeah. monkey brain. 
Yeah, it's like, let, 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 you know, locals like we don't normally do this, but let's pretend we do and make yeah. him eat. Let's watch him. <laughs> Can't believe you just ate that. Yeah, and, and the young lads, they gave me a witchery grub. You know, it's like a big sort of uh, maggot, thick as your thumb. Yeah. And I, I, knew, I was like, you little buggers. I thought, you're winding me up. <laughs> I thought, you know what? I will get my own back on you because what I did, I shook on it. I shook the hands with these five lads just said, I'll eat it if you eat what I give you. We all shook on it. I eat this widgeby grub. I bite into explosion of pus. One end oh. in my you know, <laughs> stomach, top end is in my mouth. Everyone is laughing their heads off. But I thought, brilliant. That's what I want. Laughter is a human connection. Yeah. But then that's when I pull out what I want to give them. And I pull out, it's the truth, chart a marmite. <laughs> I always, always travel on expeditions with Marmite because it's great at disguising horrible tastes. Yeah, and uh, I, I get some like little wooden sticks and I was like, "There you go, guys, try a Marmite." And they all cringe and they all uh, wincing <laughs> about it, and I'm laughing. But that was it. We're, we're all now sort of weirdly connected. Yeah, they're all eating it's, a grub to get the taste of Marmite out of the mouth. Exactly. <laughs> And I'm eating Marmite to get rid of the taste of the grub. <laughs> but um, so P&G has been really extraordinary for me in the fact that I've been able to go into these really remote communities and do factual research. Um, you know, when I've been there, like a month on my own, it's it's been absolutely incredible because I have to build human relationships. And I, I'll build those by sit and listening by trying to converse all the time, but that can be really hard if you haven't got a translator. But just doing simple things, like I'll, I'll go get the water from the river or carry the firewood, but just join in doing sport with the kids. And um, once you win the locals, you win your story. Yeah. And, um, and then that's when people will open up. And the, the, the cannibal one was very, very fascinating because – our perceptions of, oh, my gosh, they, they've they eaten people. They must be savages or just brutal. And people back home thought, you, you're just absolutely mad, on what you're going to do. You could end up dead. Just but images went, of you, like, in that sort of old cartoon in a pot full yeah, of oil exactly, and water. Exactly that. That's what people thought. But um, what I wanted to understand was, was why people had done this and how they had done it. And what would why what would drive a person to such measures to actually go and kill and hunt a person and eat? So, on the first place where I went, Holland Abbey, we're talking seven days in the middle of nowhere. They're very very you know um, peaceful community. The elders are really cool, and uh, I found a translator and. Once they warmed to me and I've warmed to them, I was then able to ask the delicate subject of, have you ever killed and eaten someone? And it's like, yeah, we have. Have you ever eaten chicken, John? I said, yeah, but why? Why have you done it? And for them, this community, it was purely through a pro- it was purely because of a protein source. Hmm. A village had come and raided their village, basically tried to do mass genocide, wipe them out. They've defended their village a couple of locals have been killed, um, which they go, we're not going to waste the meat. We're just going to eat it. And there's nothing savage about it. It's just, that's what it is, a protein source, nothing else, purely that. Wow. If, so 
once you've got that understanding, it was like, okay, what what is the big deal? And I was fortunate they, I got to see in other villages how they killed the pig and how they mimicked cooking a human, which would be through what's known as a moo-moo, uh, using hot rocks and uh, and covering it, covering the meat over. And not once out there for that month did I ever feel threatened. It was it was really really you know an authentic amazing experience. Um, and one of the best things, bizarrely, that happened was my satellite phone, my communication to the outside world had died wow. through, the, through the humidity. So I couldn't call back to the production company, give them updates. I was like, I'm just going to freestyle it. But the challenge being, I'm not an anthropologist. So thinking of questions you could pose the local community about their, you know, about their uh, history, I had to really think hard and go thorough. I had to with me HD cameras. I bought one and those batteries. And the great thing is now I've, I've still got it all on camera myself. Incredible. Uh, win the locals, you win the show. So all these remote programs people see that have the presenter, often there'll be a person in the background that's gone in there way before, yeah. won the locals, found a storyline, and then look at the logistics of how to get a crew in a team of like six or seven people in and how to make it safe if there's an accident, getting them out. So you've been that sort of pathfinder when you see your Ben Fogels and your, uh, yeah. everyone else kind of heading out. You're the one who's kind of cleared the way for them to, you know, yeah. and it's been really quite, it's, 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 it's a couple of weird things, you know, that you've, you've talked to the presenter, you've told them how it is, and then you hear your words repeated. Yeah. But then even weirder is when I was in a nightclub and chatting to some people. No one knew, knows, knew what I did. And they're chatting about, did you see that program last night? That guy was <laughs> man, he was hardcore, he was extreme. And I'm just sat there sipping my beer going, yeah, that was last year. And I put that together, but yeah. I'm not even going to tell you. I'm just going to enjoy this, you know. So, But that, that, that's, that's the weird thing, you know. And um, again, it was just saying yes to opportunities to, to go for it. So yeah, that human element's like really important when you're, you know, when you're traveling, when you're in any situation, you know, amongst people where you're sort of relying on people to get by. I think being personable and open to them is important. But what about situations? And I'm sure you've been, in fact, I know you've been in plenty where it is just you. You know, at the start, you said that, you know, you can turn up with all the kit. That's, you know, not the most important thing. It's 90% mental attitude. But what about those situations where it is just you and an environment? You know, what is your thought process and how would you approach that? Okay, so I, I've been lost twice for real, uh, both different circumstances. Uh, the, the first thing, when you find yourself lost in the middle of nowhere, straight away you've got to control your emotions. Uh, when I was, I was lost in Indonesia in Flores, my, my emotion, first of all, I was really angry. I was really annoyed that I'd allowed this to happen. And then the fear of panic was was coming in strong on me. It was kind of like overwhelming. And admittedly, I did start running around like a headless chicken trying to find the footpath. And um, after around about sort of 10 minutes, you know, I'm now sweating excessively, breathing hard. I kind of just sat down and went, just get a grip. Get a grip of your emotions. Uh, that first time, I actually went up to see a, a, a sunrise on top of a volcano and um, got a tuk-tuk to the top. 
And I told her, I said, don't worry, mate, I'll walk back. And lo and behold, walking back, I decided to take a shortcut through this jungle and I got lost. And I had pretty much no kit. So I was really annoyed that, one, I'd allow myself to get lost, but two, I had no kit. And here was me, this ex-Marine that's supposed to be ready and on the ball and prepared. And I'd just done schoolboy errors. So on that situation, I sat myself down in the shade. I was like, right, what have we got? We've got a litre and a half of water. Uh, We've got a head torch. We've got a warm top. uh, And that's pretty much it. And I thought, make a key decision um, soon, because what you're up against is the... the, um, the weather and it was getting warmer and warmer and warmer at seven o'clock in the morning and I knew that by sort of nine o'clock I'd have to rest up in the shade until it'd be cooler yeah so I allowed myself an hour to basically find the footpath that would hopefully leave me out in the area and uh after sort of you know picturing myself this is my known point I'm no longer lost I created what's like a, a compass i'd walk out in you know northeast southwest just using a rough guidance of the sun for direction i'd walk out say north 100 meters stop look for any signs of life nothing come back to the same set place and then repeat to east and south until eventually on the west i did find a footpath i was like that's a good sign i followed the footpath and he kind of in those situations, you really do intricately tune into your environment. You're looking, you're listening, you're smelling. And I found um, there were some horse hoof prints. I was like, I'm happy with that. Yeah. I followed these horse hoof prints. There's going to be a horseman somewhere. I found a horse tied up against a tree. I was like, that's pretty cool. And uh, I carried on. I found this tiny little village. And um, what was bizarre about this village, everyone was very, very tiny. They were like little hobbits. Right. Years, years later, an anthropologist found this village and they called them the, the hobbits of Indonesia. And wow. it's because of that iron deficiency. They'd all been stunted in growth. So I had one situation where no kit, went into blind panic, running around, thankfully collated and sorted myself out and put that plan. But when I got back to that hut, my own sort of hut that night, I wrote a wish list out. I was like, if that happens again, what's your wish list? What would you wish to have on you? And um, when I started doing the big sort of off the beaten track expeditions, I always carried that wish list. Lo and behold, sort of four years later, I found myself properly lost again inside the Malio Basin of uh, Sabah, Borneo, sunken volcano. I've gone in to retrieve a trekker and... Uh, who was injured, and I decided to move through the jungle at night uh, with a local guide and carrying on my hips a jungle belt kit. We've got fire lighting kit, we've got emergency food, med kit, um, bits and bobs, mosquito repellent, knife, machete. After going about two hours through darkness, my guide turned around and says, I'm lost. I said, how lost? He went, proper lost. <laughs> and he was running around in a panic and I was like, you know what? I've waited a long time for this. Let's do it. Yeah. And it was really quite cool because. Did you feel any panic yourself or having no. been in that position before you were like, right, it's not my first rodeo. Yeah, it's not the first rodeo. I'm just going to have to accept it. What's happened has happened. 
And um, I pulled out my kit, glow stick, asylum. I dropped it. I was like, right, that's my known point. And uh, this poor Malaysian guy was running around and I cleared away the area. I thought, you know what, let's make a little fire. I had a little fire, had a metal mug, heated up my emergency meal because I've been there now for a couple of hours. Had a hot tea. I did smoke at the time, had quite a few fags. And I was like, Ray Mears, eat your heart out right now. <laughs> this is this is it. This is for real. And it's kind of like sat on that rock again, having a good, am, you know, there's a cigarette, good amaran. And I loved it. And uh, around about the sort of sunrise, the guy had found our footpath, although it wasn't a footpath. It was just like little pink tapes, little bits of pink strip plastic tape to trees. And we walked our way out. But it was being prepared. Yeah. Um, I, I tell people when I do courses, I'm like, look, having the kit is great and it can really aid you in, in, in what you're trying to achieve, but it's your mindset. It's just like calm yourself down, mm. accept it. A lot of people get really angry and frustrated and annoyed. Calm your emotions down and then think about it. And, yeah. uh, what, what items are in this wish list? So... Uh, you you want to travel light. Some items are going to be used all the time. Some items only in emergency. So everyday items, um, mosquito repellent, keep the bugs away and the leeches off you. Uh, we've got water purification means, be it iodine, that will purify your water, but also treat any cuts and grazes. Yeah. Uh, we've got fire lighting kit in the form of, I will take uh, windproof, waterproof matches, but also what's known as a fire steel. It's ferocious metal, gives off sparks. And I'll have uh, cotton wool and Vaseline, which will combust very well. Uh, so we've got means of making fire. We've got string, if I need to help put a shelter together. We've got knife. Uh, I'll have a machete on there. I'll have a metal mug. And I'll have an emergency uh, meal. And the emergency meal, you get them in camping shops. It's uh, could be like a pre-cooked curry or Lancashire mm. hot pot meal. You put it, keep it in that 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 foil bag. Heat it up in boiling water. And you've got a hot meal. Couple of tea bags, boil sweets, head torch, spare batteries, and uh, and that's pretty much it. But that gives you the confidence. They go, you know what, if we get lost, I've got this to get myself out. And having that confidence, it can make, give you really good, completely in a really good position that when you have to make a decision, do I go further or do I come back? Going, you know what, I have got these items. I can go a little bit further. Yeah, I guess what a lot of those items are is time. So if you know yes. you've got a meal yeah. and you've got some supplies, then that's time. You know, Because if you don't yeah. have them, then the time you have is, is reduced. Yeah. And... You know, a lot of people, well, what about if you have to do friction fire? We've got to make your traps, you know. Those those are all great. And, yes, I can do the friction fire, can make the traps. To make friction fire, so you're now lost. It's 4 o'clock. Dark's, dark's coming within two hours. To make friction fire for the very first time, you're looking at a couple of days' practice easily or a week or so. I make it easy. I pull out my windproof lighter, uh, windproof <laughs> matches, and, and cotton wool. I can have the fire going if correctly prepped within an hour. Yeah. To make a trap, yes, if you're experienced, you could do a spring trap and make one in an hour. But as if you have it set in the right place, you may catch game. 
but to get rid of the scent of your trap, that can take a couple of days. Hmm. Well, now I've got food instantly because I just heat it up. So um, I'm ready to be to to to. I can provide things for myself straight away. Yeah. You know? Uh, it sounds incredibly romantic to live off the land with next to nothing, but it's very, very tough, and it takes a lot of. You need a lot of time, and a lot of practice. Yeah, the, the idea of being lost in the woods, and within a few days, you built a nice little cabin, and you're sort of it's, catching it's, fish and and various it's, creatures. It's not always like that. Yeah, it's, it's not, not like we see in uh, was it the island? No, no, and, and fun, funny you should say that. Um, a few years back, I went out to Panama. And I, I was a survival instructor for that show in the background. Wow. And um, I'd watched series one and two. You know, I used to watch it in bed with my missus. And I used to swear with crazy, <laughs> like, why are they doing that? They should not be doing this. They've got it completely wrong. If I was there, I'd be teaching them this, this, and this. And lo and behold. <laughs> lo and behold, I get a message um, John, would you like to come out and, and, and take, you know, be the survival instructor? I was like, oh, my gosh. And uh, flew out to Panama. And uh, I was like, right, just, you know, it can be very, um, what's the word? Not intimidating, but to know that you are the sole man responsible for, for doing survival training. If you mess this up, the consequences being people are not going to learn and they'll not be able to succeed. And yeah. if you don't succeed, through, there is no show, and there's going to be a load of wasted money. So, you know, I put this very, you know, I put a, a timetable to, together of what needs to be taught. And typically, I'd like the production company will say, yep, John, you've got five days to teach the, the contestants. So, oh, not a problem. So you look at how to collect water, find it, purify it, how to make fire by friction how to make traps. But then those days that you have, they get cut away from you. The production company go, well, we've got to do this with the people. We've got to do that. So eventually, like, yeah, you've got a day and a half. I'm like, gosh, I have a day and a half to train people to live on an uninhabited island for 30 days and all they've got is a machete. Wow. And you're like, wow, how do I condense all my knowledge in, into this? And it's a real challenge. So I can remember when people flew out and I met them, uh, we're supposed to, they're not allowed, to, you're supposed to have like minimum contacts. You can only really tell them what's needed to know. And you can see that they're absolutely petrified. And um, they, this was for the Norwegians. They were absolutely petrified. And there were other guys there involved in this show and they were telling them, you're going to go through hell. You're going to cry. Don't put the fear of God into them. Oh. I said to the director, I said, look, mate, can I sit down and just tell him my story? He said, like, yeah. And he didn't know the story I was going to tell him. And I told him how I lived on an uninhabited island off Borneo once. Uh, and it all went a little bit horribly wrong so I didn't get picked up and had minimum kit. But what I really stressed on these people was, was like, look, it will be a physical and mental challenge, but also it's a one-off opportunity. And it it can be it can be so rewarding if you look at this the right way. The right way being how many times in your life will you be away from your family and have no contact, no digital, and you're just left to fend for yourselves. And uh, I said, just look at the beauty of this experience rather than what's pitted against you. 
And that really helped them. I said, the psychological point of view is it's going to be so important. That really helped them. And over the day and a half, I just really had to skim those lessons, such as, guys, this is how, watch me do fire by friction, right? That's how I do fire, right? There is the pieces of wood. That's how I've carved them. Have 10 second go. Yeah. Um, this is how you find water, right? This is how you make a trap. So they didn't. They they got shown, but they were not given the full answers. And in the production TV world, it sounds horrible. That but they do want people to suffer a little bit. They want them to cry. It makes good television. Exactly that. So everyone sat at home watching it in the bed will shout at the TV and going, exactly. "I could do better than this." I can do better. Than that. And also, you have to remember that dynamically not the best people are always going to get picked. You will not have experts. You'll have people that are just so out of their comfort zone but and people that will not get on with one another. So mm. there will be conflict, but it's TV viewing, isn't it? Yeah. Because the aim is, if you look at it from another way, uh, a TV production company will make a program go, we want people to tune into our program because then we can, we can charge more money for adverts. Yeah. We can charge more money for adverts we'll make more of a profit. So how can we get people to tune in? We need drama. We need yeah. people crying, crying, screaming, everything like that. And um, so unfortunately, not always the best people. If on, a, on that program, they chose 10 survival experts, it'd be pretty boring viewing. You'd just be 10 people, you know, eating well, Succeeding. comfortable. Yeah. yeah, they'd be like, yeah, we're on it. They're like, well, there's no drama. Hmm. Whereas the, with the Norwegian one, there, there was dynamic challenges going on within the team people where it was conflicts and the key moment was the ladies uh they have limited water at the start i think they have like 40 liters which is not a lot in that in that environment they were running very low on water and on day four they still hadn't managed to create fire they had found a water source but they couldn't drink it they had to purify it and the means yeah. to purify it by boiling so they, they worked it out that they had like half a litre of water each and he couldn't do the fire by friction. And the director's like, if they don't get fired today, we risk them going dehydration and then we're going to have to cancel the show. So it was a case of like, Sully, what can you do? And um, they opened up the satellite phone. I spoke to them and it's like, girls, I'm going to give you a step-by-step -step tutorial on how to do fire by friction again. And um, and that's exactly what I did, step by step by step, and had to sort of visualise what they were doing. They had to visualise what I was trying to explain. But four hours later, they, they you know they screaming down the phone like ah, we've got flame. I was like bingo, get that water boiling up quick, and they hydrated. So that's kind of like the behind the scenes stuff. Um, for me, I loved it in all honesty, Jan, because yeah. I watched this show. And when I went out there, I've got like 10 days to prep. And I was like, how do you want to prep, John? I went, take me to those islands and leave me. I'm like, you what? I went, leave me. So um, the boat pulls up. I went, no, I'm not going to just step off the boat. I said, throw me off the boat. We're just in a ship. And basically the producer is like, oh, this is a Norwegian producer. Like, oh, this, this bloke's absolutely bombers. I was like, no, this is what I do. This is what yeah. I authentically love doing. And it was so surreal being on these like pristine white beaches going, I've seen this before. 
whilst watching this in bed. <laughs> now I hear stood here, the boat disappears in a silence, and it just become that that little boy again. Going right, what do I do? Where do I go? And you just like you look at everything because like what is a resource um, from the coconuts? Where would I make a shelter? Uh, unfortunately, the biggest resource was the plastic and the rubbish that was washed up, oh, uh, which was very, very sad to see. But it's like, let's use it. And once I got, you know, where would I make the shelter? What could I use and how would I do it? I then went back to the mainland, back into like a hotel, sat down and put a training program together. Uh, on go, right, this is how I'm going to teach the subjects. And which one of the subjects was I walked the ladies and the guys down to the beach. I went, look at all this rubbish. What can we use? How do we use, you know, this polystyrene? How can we use these washed up flip-flops and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, it was a pretty cool experience. Nice. And did you, did you feel that sense of pride um, watching the, the people that you taught kind of pr progressing? Do you think they did well? Yeah, they absolutely smashed it. They absolutely, absolutely smashed it. And the feedback at the end... Uh, the, the girls are on one island, the guys are on another. The ladies were a lot, lot stronger because they worked together better as a team. They wasn't mm. trying to fight for that alpha male spot. They nominated uh, an older lady who became like the decision maker. Whereas the guys, there's a bit of alpha male fighting going on, you know, who who make the key decisions. But the they said at the at the end, you know, I, I got to sit down and say, what was the key things, ladies? And I said, it was your story at the start. And, it was, and when saying to embrace the environment, not to be afraid of it, embrace it and just to go for it. And uh, and overall, they were hugely successful. The ladies walked off the island going, done 30 days. They could have smashed it out for another 30 days easily. And, and so could the guys. It was their mindset that, that got them there to the end. So I was really pleased. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, hopefully when things open up, there'll be a, a future series of of the island to, to kind of get you back out to Panama. Uh, there, it may be well, there may well be, but in all honesty, um, I'm married. I've got a little boy. When I did that Panama trip, I was away for two months. And I couldn't dream of being away from him for two months. Yeah. And uh, bizarrely enough, before I did that trip, you know, uh, I was engaged, saving up for a wedding. And that trip landed. And I was like, Veronica, like, if we get this, this will pay for our wedding. But it also meant that, that I'm going to go be living on another uninhabited island for a month because I need to react uh, if there's an emergency. And uh, I didn't have a satellite phone. I was like, I'm not going to be able to call you. So I was looking at these satellite phones and they're very expensive. I was like, I can't afford it. But I did see a competition. This is this is complete. I don't often tell this one. I saw a competition on Twitter. And it was Ed Stafford. And the people that sponsor Ed Stafford of his satellite phones, they were giving one away. And Ed Stafford said, for your chance to win this satellite phone, please tweet us and post your best survival picture and the winner will be decided new year's eve so i'm monitoring this twitter page now and i'm watching people putting really cool survival pictures on pictures where beautiful you know fire by the lake trees around them some really extreme ones in the middle of nowhere and i was like 
this is going to be a poster campaign or something. This will be tweeted. This will, they will want to push yeah. this. So I was like, what can I do to stand out? And I had lots of cool, authentic pictures. I thought, no, I've got something that's going to be a little bit different. After I did, after I did uh, Saturday Night Fever on stage, right, I went out to the Himalayas to lead a private trip. And when I went out to the Himalayas, someone in England went, I bet you can't do Saturday Night Fever on top of the Himalayan mountains. I went back to Christmas Day. Okay, I had my glitter top on. I had all my Indian porters behind me. And I taught them a Saturday Night Fever routine. <laughs> and I videoed it and took one still picture where we're all finger pointing up into the sky like John Travolta. And I went, that is the picture to tweet. And I tweeted it, uh, staying alive, expedition style. And I only went and won the satellite phone. <laughs> Incredible. I was like, genius. I, I won it. I won this £1,000 phone. And uh, I bought about £350 worth of credit, which worked out that I could phone Veronica 10 minutes per day on this trip so at 8 p.m every day it'd be uk time sort of 12 o'clock midday i would walk off away from the team sit in the middle of nowhere put the satellite phone on and i sit there with a stopwatch ring it as soon as she go hello i start the stopwatch yeah we're talking 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 how's your day been how's your day been john same as ever just been on this island you know doing nothing but um I was like, Veronica, that's nine minutes. Nine minutes. Don't, can we have more? I was like, if we have more, three weeks' time, I'm not going to be able to talk to you. So I had to stay disciplined. And um, anyway, I don't know why I got rattled on about that story, but proof in the pudding, enter your competitions. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, but it, boosts, it boosted my morale no end. You've got to imagine everyone who submitted the you know, photos of them sort of <laughs> on the north face of the Eiger yeah. or out in the jungle, and then you just Real. come along with your like cheesy Saturday night picture. It was. It was cheesy picture. You've got these really authentic pictures on top of Everest and everything, and then there's just some bloke idiot with a you know, sequin top on on top of a mountain posing. <laughs> but, um, Tremendous. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I think uh, we, we've sort of gone on longer than I normally do for an episode. This has been a really good chat. Um, I've enjoyed cool. it. Uh, if anyone wants to find out more about you, the courses you run, where can they track you down online? Yeah, so um, best way is a website called www.elitesurvivaltraining.com. Uh, social media, Instagram. I, I always tend to post a lot of pictures on there and announcements of courses. That's EliteSurvivalTraining.com. Um, John Sullivan at LinkedIn or Elite Survival. Find us there. As to when the course is going to happen, they're going to be in the UK, based in sort of Leicestershire, um, hopefully end of this year, or maybe kind of an extreme castaway experience on Flatholms Island uh, just off Wales, which I, you've done. I can recommend on. that one. It was, uh, it was great fun. Yeah, and it'd been just nice to reconnect with like-minded folk and back to nature. Yeah, very much so. I, w I would wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, I'll put all the links to your like social media website in the show notes, so when it goes out, people can just scroll down and uh, see them in there as well. Uh, but no, I enjoyed this chat. It's been good. I think it's it's making me want to just take a backpack out into the woods and go camping I, this weekend. You know, and... Um... I, I say to all youngsters or any age, if you get a chance to backpack and travel, do it. Because for me, what I really love is that sense of freedom. 
you know you yeah. you're not worrying about you know the little things in life you're just like you you can do what you want to do and certainly when i'm older in life i'll, I'll still go backpacking when the kids have grown up and i'm just like we're off I think anything like that where you kind of strip away and your concerns, your aims for the day become so much more focused. You know, yeah. what have you got to do today? You've got to get up and go to this place or do this thing and that's it. That's all you've got to worry about. You know, you're not having to stress about any other elements and, you know, okay, sometimes in those situations, not doing the thing might mean you've not got water or food for the day, but, you know, at least you know you've got your goal and that's what you're working yeah. for. Totally. So uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Jan and um, I really enjoyed it and I don't normally do talks like this you know I went totally unscripted it's, it's been real fun so for any listeners out there look lockdown's going to finish life will continue keep smiling and uh, we'll be back to normal nice one all right thanks a lot John pleasure folks there we go that was John Sullivan you can find him online at elitesurvivaltraining.com and over on social media at Elite Survival on Twitter, Elite Survival Training on Instagram, and Elite Survival Training on Facebook. As I said uh, during that interview, you know, I took part in one of John's courses a few years back. Uh, I had this group of students from a previous job and we took them down to Wales and with John we took this speedboat out to this small uninhabited island off the Welsh coast where the group had to build shelters you know they learned to start fires and they took on you know challenges to build weapons using only what they could find it was all a bit hunger games meets lord of the flies and what i loved about it was how everyone reacts to that situation uh, and like john said you know seeing that pride in people's faces as they started their own fire or built a bloody great big trebuchet using driftwood and old inner tubes that they found on the beach and it was the people you least expected who flourished. You know, there was this one lad who, I think he was studying computer science or something like that. And he was a bit quiet, but we hit that island and he went primal. Uh, you know, the island, there's nobody living there um, except for this population of sheep and lots and lots and lots of rabbits. And after the group had just done this challenge on, on foraging, you know, they gathered up some moss and limpets and other bits to eat. This lad sitting there with a knife uh, around the fire, and he's whittling a spoon out of driftwood. And he looks over at this group of rabbits on the hill, and he just gets this look in his eye, and he quietly asks, if I catch one of those, can we eat it? Uh, that's it from me. Don't forget to subscribe. Join us over on social media at CouchKickerPod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next episode, we're changing things up a bit and focusing on running. Uh, because I've foolishly said I want to run a half marathon this year, despite not enjoying running, having never really run, and having no great appetite to do it. Uh, it's the lockdown cabin fever, clearly, but there we go. I've said it publicly on the podcast, so I've got to do it now. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you later. Mm -hmm.